they go. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to look at part two of Can We Trust the Bible? If you have your Bible with you, hand it, uh, hold it up, grab it, hold it up. I know some of you have iPads, and that'll, that'll do. And isn't that powerful now? By this book, you defeat the devil. And by this book, you save yourself many tears, many regrets, many sorrows. By this book, you are guided through life safely down that narrow road that leads to life. This is not just a book about God. It is the Word of God. Breathed out by God. And we're on this uh, because I am called to establish you in the faith. That's my calling. I thank God for revival, and we're going to have one. And I sense one stirring now. And I want us jumping high. But I also want us landing right. Okay? Because sometimes it's not how high you jump, it's how you land. My calling is to establish you so that the world can't take your security, that is your belief or your trust in this word, away from you. Because this is the word of God. If we lose this word, we're cooked. Okay? Now, tonight, part two of Can We Trust the Bible? And let's pray, and then you can be seated. And I want to ask God to put this deep in us. And remember, next week we start Philippians. Philippians, the epistle of joy. Anybody need joy? Boy, don't miss. Next week we're going to start Philippians. And it's going to be great. The road to joy. And so let's pray right now. Father, we thank you that you gave us this word. It's a precious word, a dear word, a a word we can't do without. We pray that you will open our eyes and our understanding. Help us, Lord, to know enough to know we can trust it. And to stand in front of this reprobate culture and not be threatened by what they say about this Bible. But they should be threatened by what this Bible says about them and all of us. So, Lord, we thank you for teaching us your word. Will you breathe a prayer tonight and say, Lord, establish me in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this is going to be good. You better perk up and listen. All right. I think it would be good if we read this 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible is very specific uh, regarding its origin. It doesn't leave us wondering what it says about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 reads, read it with me, all, well, that's two of you. Are you ready? One, two, three. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That includes Numbers. That includes Deuteronomy. That includes Leviticus. That includes Amos. That includes the minor prophets, major prophets, the Psalms, Song of Solomon. All of it is given by inspiration of God. That word is very powerful, inspiration. Theonoustos is the Greek. It means breathed out. It literally exhaled. God exhaled his word. He breathed it out. This is the God-breathed word. In the original Greek, by inspiration of God means God breathed. 
Now, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21 adds to this fact. Can you read it with me? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. This book didn't come by man's will. No man, not Isaiah, Jeremiah, none of them woke up one day and said, well, I think I'm going to write some more of the Bible. That's not how it happened. It didn't come by the will of man. How'd it come? Read it with me. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Spirit gave the word by moving on holy men. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus. Of course, Jesus gave all the word, ultimately. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul. Holy men of old. Holy Ghost moved on them, and they wrote as he inspired them. He wrote, they wrote, as he moved on them what to say. Now, none of the writers, approximately 40 men, over approximately 1,500 years, claimed that the words to be of their, were of their own origin, but they were singularly of God. Not one of the 40 ever said, these are my words. Not one of them. It said, God moved on me. The Holy Spirit fell on me. God spoke to me. Forty of them, not just one, like the Quran, where Muhammad is the only one that wrote, but 40 of them over 1,500 years wrote, and they all agree. As a whole, Scripture demonstrates the Bible's claim that God is responsible for the origin of Scripture, not men. Now, last time we looked at five of ten evidences that the Bible is God's Word. The first five evidences can be easily remembered by the acronym FACES, F-A-C-E-S, and it is F, fulfilled prophecy, A, archaeology, C, consistency, E, eternal verification, or I'm sorry, external verification, and the S, science. So there you have FACES. If you missed last week, get the CD. It is worth listening to. And if you want the notes, they're free. Get them. Go get them. And spread the word, because there's a lot of false garbage going out about the Bible today. And that's why we're going to counter it here, because this is the greatest book in the entire world. There's not another one like it, not one that even comes close. Okay? Now, this time, we're going to look at the last five evidences of the Bible being the Word of God, so that you can look at a skeptic and say, that's not true. Let me tell you the truth about the Bible. First, there's manuscript evidence. Now, what is a manuscript? A manuscript is a handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of Gutenberg's printing press in 1455. All right? When God moved on these holy men and they wrote, they wrote on papyrus. All right? Papyrus ages. It goes through aging and process of time. It gets old, it crinkles and whatnot. So copiers would take the original documents and letter by letter copy what the original documents said. They were called copyists. A lot of this went on during what we call the Dark Ages. There were copyists, and they were copying letter by letter what all the books in the Bible said 
And so we had document, copied into another document, copied into another document, over the centuries. And there have been those, including the Mormons and the Muslims, who have falsely asserted that the Bible has undergone corruption down through the centuries as it was copied and translated. In other words, they contend that some copyist, somewhere along the way, decided that he didn't like what it said, so he changed the original into what he felt was accurate or correct. We say we have enough evidence to prove that that did not happen. We have abundant evidence to prove that that never happened. But we have what the original documents said. Because the evidence proves otherwise. Today, there survives more than 25,000 partial and complete ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the New Testament alone. Do you know what that means? That so far eclipses what we have for any other ancient document. It's not even funny. What we have as far as extant copies of the New Testament that all agree with each other. We don't find one copy that says one thing and another one that was older that says another. They all agree. And we have 25,000 testimonies to that fact of the New Testament alone. Compared to any other ancient document, that's a joke. We've got like a few of Homer and his poetry and his writings. If you want to go to a bunch of the ancient documents that colleges love to quote from and teach from and declare are totally trustworthy and valid, they don't hold a candle to the number of copies we have for the New Testament. Not to mention hundreds of Old Testament manuscripts that survive today dating back to as early as 300 years before Jesus arrived in Bethlehem. These handwritten manuscripts have allowed scholars and critics to go back and verify that the Bible we have in our possession today is the same Bible that the early church possessed 2,000 years ago. It's the same one. You hold it in your hand. God did not allow it to be corrupted, and we know that's true. We got the evidence. But now, you can view these manuscripts yourself at places like the British Museum, the Cambridge University Library, Smithsonian Institute, Oxford University, National Library at Paris, Israel Museum, and on and on and on. They're for, they're for everybody to see that we have these thousands of copies, and they all agree. It's a miracle. This is the most attested to ancient book in the history of the world. There it is. Now get this. I didn't know this until I found this and I wanted to put it in here. Even if we did not have any manuscripts, we have the writings of the church fathers. Now watch this. By church fathers, I'm referring to those leaders in the church during the first three centuries after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus who followed the original disciples. Here's their names. Men like Justin Martyr, church father, Eusebius, Tertullian, Polycarp. Those are all men who lived a couple of centuries after the original disciples had died. Now these men and their writings and their correspondence with one another in their letters to different churches quote the Old and New Testament over and over again. In fact, the early church fathers quote the New Testament alone 
more than 86,000 times. And here is something most people don't realize. Their writings survive to this day. You can go to Amazon.com right now and buy an encyclopedic-sized set of the writings of the church fathers and see with your own eyes there are numerous quotations of the Bible. Now catch this. There are enough Bible quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct 99.86% of the New Testament today just from their writings. That's amazing validation of the New Testament. Can we hold it up again? Say, this is, this is not a fairy tale. This is not Brothers Grimm. This is the Word of God, preserved through the ages, perfectly inerrant. And I can trust it, and I can stand on it, and I can live by it, and I can die by it. That's right. I love this out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now here's a seventh confirmation of God's word, and that is the Bible's forthrightness about its author's and hero's failures. In other words, how honest the Bible is about its heroes, about its main characters, and their failures, and their shortcomings, and their weaknesses. Now, if I'm going to write a book by which I'm going to try to bring the whole world into a religion that I want to launch, I'm going to make every hero in there look perfect. I'm not going to tell you the truth about them. I'm going to make them look like Superman, and Batman, and Robin, and all the superheroes, and I'm not going to show you their flaws and their faults. Because after all, I'm trying to persuade you to come into the religion I'm wanting you to embrace. But that's not what the Bible writers did. The Bible's openness about its very own author's sins and failures is the seventh reason that I believe the Bible is an honest work. Its forthrightness in this regard makes it absolutely unique among all other religious books, unlike the authors of other religious writings. The authors of the Bible did not seek to cast themselves in a good light or to elevate themselves at all. In fact, they freely confessed that they were just sinful, ordinary men. Consider some of the failures and shortcomings that the writers of the Bible told us about. We read about Noah getting drunk shortly after getting off the ark. I wouldn't have told that. The dude built an ark for a whole century. He floated. He's the only one that survived. I'd leave it right there. But no, the Bible tells the truth. He got drunk after all of that and messed up at the very end. But he's still the great Noah. But watch this. Abraham, we catch him lying on more than one occasion about Sarah being his wife. And he's the father of our faith. How about Moses' outburst of anger, how he misrepresented God and wasn't even allowed to enter into the promised land? I wouldn't have told that about Moses. But they did. Why? Because they have nothing to hide. Why? Because the Bible's true. It's honest. And if it's honest about these things, it's honest about everything. 
Israel's rejection of God on numerous occasions. For example, just read through the book of Judges. All they do is get up and fall again and get up and fall again and get up and fall again. And then there's David's adultery and his subsequent murder of Uriah. I wouldn't have told that about the man after God's own heart. And then there's the disciples arguing about who was going to be the greatest while Jesus was on his way to the cross. And Peter's denial of the Lord. If I'm Peter, I would have gone to my bros and said, Hey, I know you're writing a gospel. Don't talk about my denial. But they told the truth, didn't they? And aren't you glad they did? And then he was also afraid of being seen eating with Gentiles, and Paul had to rebuke him. And what about the disciples falling asleep when Jesus asked them to pray? That's not a very good word about them, but they did. And Paul's confession that he was a wretched man, the chief of sinners, he told the truth. Paul and Barnabas arguing over whether or not Mark should be allowed to travel with them. They had a falling out. They had a fight. These great missionaries, the Bible tells the truth about them. I, I trust it for many reasons, but one of the reasons is it tells me the truth about the flaws and shortcomings. And if it's telling me the truth about the heroes in this book, then it's telling me the truth about everything else. I saw Jesus crucified. I saw him after he had risen from the dead. He came walking into our room, walked right through the door. He showed us the nail-scarred hand. I was standing there when he ascended back up into heaven. I believe them on that because they tell me about their mistakes. Now, do these things sound like the kind of things that men making up the Bible would write about themselves? No, because flesh likes to glorify itself. The author's openness about these kind of details helps me to believe that these men were being honest about the things they wrote about. Now, add to this seventh evidence the fact that these men imparted to the world the highest standards of conduct the world has ever seen and we only strengthen our case because they were made strong by the christ they preached now an eighth evidence of the bible being god's word is the willingness of jesus disciples to suffer and die i don't know about you i wish i could say tonight that i would die for the truth I trust that martyr's grace would be there if I ever had to. But you know what? You're never going to catch me dying for a lie. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to die for a lie. And not one of you would die for a lie. The disciples went to their graves one by one, suffering and dying martyr's deaths for their ongoing belief in preaching that Jesus' resurrection was an absolute fact of history. Historians like Flavius Josephus and Eusebius and others tell us that Matthew was slain with a sword in a city of Ethiopia for a lie, for a farce, for something made up. I don't think so. Mark died in Alexandria in northern Egypt after having been cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hung upon an olive tree in the land of Greece. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less, as he's called in Mark 1540, was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple. Same kind of deal that Jesus was tempted from. Devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple. 
they took Mark up there, or James the Less, and threw him off. Philip was hung up against a pillar at Hierapolis in the province of Phrygia, and Bartholomew was flayed alive. That means whipped to death. For a lie? For, a, for a, something they concocted? Never. All of them were so convinced, so knew the truth. They died for it. Andrew was bound to a cross and left to die. Jude was shot to death with arrows. And Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death by the Jews at Salonica. And Paul, we know what happened to Paul, the former enemy of Christ, after a variety of tortures and persecutions, was beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified, just as Jesus told him he would be in John 21, crucified in Rome. All those men did not die for a lie. No way. That's not human nature. Human nature is if I'm telling you a lie and I get caught, I run. I don't die for it. Thomas, the former skeptic of the resurrection, was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies for preaching the gospel. The disciples all sealed their testimony that Christ was alive with their own blood. They went to their graves still affirming that the events which they had witnessed had actually truly, no doubt about it, occurred. I find it hard to believe these men were lying. No way. Now, people may be willing to die for something that they think is true, but nobody willingly dies for something they know is a lie. If anybody knew whether or not Jesus was alive after his resurrection, it would have been the disciples. They were in a unique position historically that allowed them to know whether what they were saying was true or not. They actually lived in Israel at the time Jesus lived and was raised from the dead. They were there as eyewitnesses. So having seen it, they said, I know it's true. I touched him. I talked to him. He filled me with his spirit. I saw him do miracles all those years. I saw him die, and I saw him risen from the dead, and I was there when he ascended. No way. It's a lie. So I'm willing to die for it. Now, that makes me believe this book. It's got truthful people in it, telling the truth about themselves and the truth about God. Now, a ninth evidence that the Bible is the Word of God is the Bible's transforming power for good. Man, I'll tell you, I was flipping through the channels the other night, and I came across this show called Intervention. I never saw in all of my life a family more in bondage than this family that was in this. Intervention is where somebody's hooked on a drug, if you've never seen it. It is depressing. I mean, it is depressing. I mean, because this person, they're usually on crack cocaine or drinking themselves to death, and you have the family coming together in one last-ditch effort to get them to give it up and go get treatment. And so it showed this family gathering together before the addicted person got there, and I was wondering whether or not it was good for the addicted person to finally get there because these people were so miserable and bitter against each other. They started arguing. They started accusing each other. They were the picture of misery, unhappiness, depression, despair. And I turned to Kathy and I said, I wish 
that I could just put Jesus in that room. Just right there. Because if, you, if, if they had just obeyed his teachings for one hour, that family would have been transformed. If I could have just made them open up this Bible and read the red, read the red ink, they would have been transformed and could really have helped this addicted person. It made you wonder, but what they were part of the reason, they were addicted. I don't know about what I would have wanted to check out of reality if I was around them all the time. But I thought, the Bible's ability to transform because of the God that it presents. The Bible claims to be living and powerful. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and intents and hidden motivations of the heart. It's a powerful word. And that's proven to be the case all through history. No other book in the world has had the transforming effect upon lives and societies for good than that of the Bible. Wherever the gospel has gone, say with me, wherever the gospel has gone, you hold in your heart you don't need to have a psychological PhD. You don't need to be brilliant. You don't need to be highly educated. You've got the gospel. And when that gospel is shared, it's like, like John said Sunday, it's like dropping a bomb. Because that gospel has the power. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Watch this. Wherever the gospel has gone, the Bible has had a transforming effect on every culture and country for good. Down through the centuries, its words have converted millions of unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Millions of people who would testify, and many of you, most of us here tonight, could say we were immoral, vile sinners, drowning in drug addiction, alcoholism, pornography, gambling, and the like, have been transformed into godly men and women, as we have studied and followed the teachings of the Bible you hold in your hand. It is a transforming book. I don't worship the Word of God, but I do worship the God of the Word, and I thank God for giving us His Word. What words of wisdom the Bible contains? People on every continent in more than 2,000 languages, think about that, look to the Bible to guide them through life's perplexing and confusing circumstances. I was digging in it this morning. The Bible has inspired people to build hospitals, start universities. Most of the world's great universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were started by Christians for Christian purposes. The Bible was responsible for launching humanitarian efforts to the poor throughout the centuries. It was the inspiration behind the abolishment of slavery through people like William Wilberforce, who was an evangelical Christian and member of the British Parliament in the early 19th century, and he was largely responsible for the abolition of the slave trade and what moved him, this book. It was the prime mover behind those who worked for the equality of people among people of different skin colors, as well as the fair and equitable treatment of women. I tell women, I say, listen, you owe your liberty a lot of the way you are honored to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. We're told a lie. We're told that Paul was a male chauvinist. We are told that the Old Testament degraded women. We're told that the Bible degrades women, and it's, the, and it's sort of like a throwback to the Dark Ages. If women 
walk in what the Bible teaches. But let me tell you something. I heard today that in Islam, when, a, when Islamic women testify in court, they require two women because they believe that a woman can't think and speak at the same time. Now you tell me how westernized women who have been through all of the equal rights fights, the whole feminist movement, could possibly fall for that. Let me tell you something, dear sister, and anybody listening by radio, if you're thinking about becoming a part of Islam, you better read the Quran and what they teach about women. If you want to be, and I'm going to be bold here, if you want to be marginalized, sometimes degraded, treated like a second-class citizen, looked down upon, and you want to lose your freedom, embrace it. But if you want to be liberated, really liberated, turn to Jesus Christ. He's your hero. And i got to tell you something. My wife can think and speak at the same time real easy. And how many of you women can say the same thing? Boy, I heard that, and I thought there ought to be an uproar all over America. Anyway, the Bible moved great scientific minds like Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, to investigate the universe scientifically. Do you know why people like Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, scientists, do you know why they wanted to study the universe? Because they believed God created it. They believed that a God of design and calculation and symmetry and logic created it, and they wanted to discover how he had put it together. And it drove them. These men were not driven to figure out a world that was by happenstance, by way of evolution, and some amoeba crawling some of, out of some ancient primordial sea, and all of this just sort of happened. That's not why. They wanted to understand the world and the universe that they believed God had created. And it drove their science. And the Bible furthered the development of great art and music through people like Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach. Philip Schaff, speaking of Jesus' influence, aptly wrote, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, of course, I'm careful to read that because he was brilliant. The brightest mind, most brilliant mind that ever walked the earth was Jesus. You do know that. He was not boo, 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 kind of uh, off in another world all the time. He was the most brilliant mind to ever walk the planet. But without a science degree or advanced learning in a school somewhere, he shed more light on things, human and divine, than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, Jesus set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. And that's a fact. 
Now we come to the last evidence and we'll close. Y'all being blessed tonight? Can we hold it up again and say, this is God's book? All right, let's look at this last one. The last evidence is the testimony of Jesus himself, the Son of God. Let's look at his testimony. Another reason you can be sure the Bible is trustworthy is Jesus said that it was trustworthy. Jesus did not just claim to be the Son of God. He proved that he was the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, living a sinless life, and performing a multitude of miracles. If Jesus is the Son of God, we can trust what he had to say about the Word of God. You catch that? Why do I believe the Bible is the Word of God? Lots of reasons, but one of them is Jesus said it was. And I believe in Jesus. Jesus affirmed at least six things that were true about the Bible. Let's go through them quickly. He said, Jesus said, this Bible in your hand is without error. In John 17, 17, Jesus said in his prayer to his Father, Thy word is truth. Not full of mistakes, not partially true, thy word is truth. Jesus taught that the Bible was historically reliable. It's not a bunch of fairy tales. It's historically reliable. Jesus affirmed as historically true some of the most disputed passages of the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed the story of Jonah in the whale that everybody says was a myth. But no, God prepared a fish, and when Jonah was thrown over, it ate him. And he went down into the depths. And if you want to read what it's like in a whale's gut, read Jonah. I believe Nineveh repented because a dude who was bleached white came stepping out of the water and said, repent! (laughs) Ah! I guarantee he had a look in his eye. But Jesus affirmed that story. Read it, Matthew 12, 40. He affirmed the destruction of the world by a flood in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus affirmed a man taking a century to build a boat, to float during a worldwide flood. He affirmed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on. Jesus said, third, the Bible's divinely authoritative. Over and over, if you listen, read the red ink, you'll find him saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. How did he defeat the devil? It is written. How did he answer the Pharisees and Sadducees? It is written, because he knew this was an authoritative word. Fourth, he knew that it was scientifically accurate. For example, when he taught on marriage, he referred to the literal creation of Adam and Eve. He was not an evolutionist. He was a creationist because he was the creator. Fifth, he said the Bible is infallible, dependable, or unbreakable. In John 10, 35, Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. And then finally, he said it's indestructible. In Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law till every bit of it is accomplished or fulfilled. If Jesus was a prophet of God, as even the Quran teaches, 
or even if he was a good teacher, as many are willing to believe today, it'd be wise for us to take his word on the matter. Beyond dispute, Jesus taught that the Bible is historically reliable, divinely authoritative, scientifically accurate, dependable, error-free, and indestructible. This book, this book, that means you can carry it in public proudly. Fools throw this book away. Wise people embrace it. Can you stand with me tonight? Now, I went through a few things here, and let me get to the end. So how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? Say with me, fulfilled prophecy. Archaeological verification. The Bible's internal consistency. External verification. The Bible's amazing scientific accuracy. Manuscript evidence. The Bible's honesty about its heroes. The willingness of Jesus' disciples to suffer. The Bible's transforming power for good. And the testimony of Jesus, the Son of God. That's how you know. That's how you know. We pray together, Father, we just thank you for this divine book, this amazing book, this transforming and enlightening, illuminating, truthful book. Help us to assimilate it, to internalize it, to meditate on it, to chew on it, think it through, study it, research it, scour its pages, and allow it to renew our minds and guide our lives. We say, Lord, with you, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Let's worship for just a moment before we go. Name above all names, beautiful Savior. Sing to him now. Glorious Lord. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. Bless Redeemer. Blessed Redeemer. Everyone. If you're thankful for Jesus, give him a hand of praise tonight. And you are dismissed. God bless you. Have a good night, and we'll see you Sunday. Amen.